0: This message was presented at the GYC 2012 conference in Seattle, Washington. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Father in heaven, thank you for life this day. There are so many things that we take for granted that we just think are automatic, like food and clothing and life itself. We thank you, Father, for all of the blessings that you pour out abundantly upon us. We thank you especially for your word, which is a sure guide in a world that is so confused. We just ask that as we open that word and study a portion of it, that your Holy Spirit will be with us to guide our thoughts. And We ask, Lord, that as we study these things, that you will help us to feel an urgency of reaching out to the world with the saving message of Jesus Christ. So that people can have assurance, so that people can get rid of their confusion, and they can know exactly where things are leading, and that way they can prepare for what is coming. We thank you for the promise of your presence, and we come before your throne boldly, in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen. Okay, what we're going to do today, in our first session, we're going to discuss the purpose of the gift of tongues. Remember, we're dealing with one particular Hebrew feasts. We're dealing with the day of Pentecost. You know, we could have studied other uh, feasts. There, there's um, Passover, and there's Unleavened Bread, and there's uh, First Fruits, and there's the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. We're studying the, the feast that is right square in the middle of the Hebrew feasts, uh, which was in the late spring uh, in the Hebrew religious calendar. Uh, So we're going to take a look uh, in the first hour at the purpose of the gift of tongues. And then in the second hour, the title is Return to Babel. Uh, I know that that's number six in the booklet that we have, but I'm switching things around just a little bit. And then this afternoon, I'm going to be dealing with a very hot button topic. And I'm not going to tell you what it is. (laughs) Because curiosity killed the cat. (laughs) <laughs> um it, it's, a, it's a very, very hot topic in the Seventh-day Adventist Church right now, and um, I'm going to deal f- with it from a different perspective than uh, normally it is dealt with. So, uh, we'll leave it at that. I hope that you will all uh, lay plans to come this afternoon to the last session. Uh, anyway, I'd like to begin this morning by uh, turning in my Bible, and I invite you to turn in yours, to Matthew chapter 3. And verse eleven, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11. This verse is speaking about the mission and message of John the Baptist. And there are several elements that I want us to notice in this very important verse. This is taking place about six months before Jesus was baptized and began His ministry. The, uh, of course, John the Baptist is the forerunner of Christ. He prepares the way for the Messiah. It says there in Matthew 3, verse 11, here John is speaking, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. Now, the three... Terms that I want us to um, keep in mind as we begin our study is, or are, number one, baptize, number two, Holy Spirit, and number three, fire. Uh, There's no doubt whatsoever that John the Baptist was announcing what happened on the day of Pentecost. So I want us to see the connection between what John the Baptist said and what occurred on the day of Pentecost. John the Baptist is predicting what happened on the day of Pentecost. That's critically important. Now, Jesus also referred to what was going to happen on the day of Pentecost. Let's go in our Bibles to Luke 24, in verses 44 through 49. Luke 24, verses 44 to 49. Now, John the Baptist doesn't specifically say what the purpose of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is. He simply says that uh, He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. But He doesn't say what the purpose of the baptism is. But Jesus does. Notice Luke 24, 44 to 49. This is taking place in the upper room the day of the resurrection. In other words, Jesus resurrected in the morning. This is happening in the evening. Jesus meets with the disciples in the upper room. And notice what takes place. Then He said to them, Thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And now listen carefully. And that repentance and remission of sins, the word remission simply means forgiveness, and that repentance and remission or forgiveness of sins should be what? Should be preached. So what was the central message of the apostles? Repentance and what? And forgiveness of sins. That was the central focus of their message. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Now where was it supposed to be preached? Repentance and remission of sins should be preached in His name. Where? To all nations beginning at Jerusalem. Remember Jesus is saying this on resurrection day. He's saying that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be preached to all nations, and the preaching was to begin in Jerusalem. Excuse me, I should have turned off my cell phone. It's one of the organizers of GYC. Well, let me turn it off. There we go. I always tell everybody to turn their cell phone off. And I'm the greatest transgressor. (laughs) Sorry about that. Okay, now, in order to fulfill this mission, beginning in Jerusalem, they need to have power, right? And so notice verse 48. Jesus uh, repeats, and you are witnesses of these things. You're going to be my witnesses. And then verse 49 says, Behold, I send the promise of my Father... Upon you but Terry in the city of Jerusalem, that's where the gospel was going to begin to be preached, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with what? with power from on high. So what is the purpose of the power that is given on the day of Pentecost, according to Jesus the purpose is so that they can serve as witnesses, beginning at Jerusalem, to all nations. Is that clear? In other words, the purpose of the power is the preaching of the message. Now, let's go uh, to what happens 40 days later. Acts chapter 1. 40 days after Jesus spoke these words in the upper room. In Acts 1, verses 4 and 5, we have... Very similar idea, only Jesus is expressing this more than a month later, a month and ten days. It says there, and being assembled together with them, he commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem. See the same idea coming again. But to wait for the promise of the Father. Had he talked about the promise of the Father in the upper room? Yes. Yes. But to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. And then notice that he's going to talk about John the Baptist. Is this going to be the same gift that John the Baptist spoke about? The one, that Jesus, the one on the day of Pentecost? Absolutely. Notice, Jesus refers to John the Baptist. It says there in verse 5, For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Is that the same terminology that John the Baptist used? Absolutely. So did John the Baptist predict Pentecost? Yes. Did Jesus in the upper room predict Pentecost? Yes. Is Jesus here talking about Pentecost? Is this the same gift that, that is spoken of in all of these passages? Absolutely. But now notice. He says, wait for the promise of the Father. And there's a purpose for waiting for the promise of the Father. Let's read Acts 1 and verse 8. Acts 1 and verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And what is the purpose of receiving the power? Notice that you shall is used twice. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be what? You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What is the purpose of the power? The purpose of the power is not uh, self-edification. The purpose of the power is not a shot of spiritual adrenaline. The purpose of the power is not so that you can feel good. The purpose of the power is not even so that you can speak in tongues. The purpose of the power is to share the message. The message about repentance and forgiveness of sins. That is present truth in the days of the apostles. Now, we have additional, uh, additional truth that we need to link with that these days, but we'll talk about that later. Now, go with me to John 7, verses 37 to 39. John 7, 37 to 39. And last year in the seminar I gave here, I referred to this passage, but probably many of you were not here last year. I don't know where you were. You should have been here. Uh, just kidding. Uh, but, but anyway, I, I, want to know, I want us to notice something very important here. John 7:37 to 39. This is at the feast of tabernacles. The and it's the last day of the feast. Tabernacles lasted 8 days and the 8th day was called the great day of the feast. It was the climax of the feast and Jesus is in Jerusalem. It says there on the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, "If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink." Now, what does it mean to drink? What does Jesus mean when he says, Come to me and drink? What does it mean to drink the water that we receive from Jesus? Verse 38 explains it. He who believes in me, to drink the water means to what? To believe in Him. Now, it doesn't mean an intellectual belief. You know, something that you have in your brain. You believe that He died and He resurrected and He's coming again. No, it's not talking about that. The word believe in the New Testament is really a word that, rep- that means trust. Trust. It's a word that means uh, to have faith in. And what Jesus is saying is, He, he who repents and trusts in my life and my death will receive the water. But then notice what he says. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Are you catching the picture? Jesus says, you come to me, you trust in me, you receive me as your Savior, you receive forgiveness of sins, you're baptized, and then what happens is, you've drunk the water, and the water is inside of you. He says, and then the water that you drank now becomes a fountain in you for others. That's why he says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. In other words, when you drink of the water, you become a fountain of water. Now, what was Jesus talking about when he said this? Let's read verse 39. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would what? Would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let me ask you, what did Peter do immediately after the Holy Spirit was poured out? What did Peter and those who were present there in the upper room do? They preached. Isn't that right? They pre- Peter preached a, a marvelous sermon, a homiletical masterpiece. When you really study it, we're going to go through the details of it. In other words, they received the power, and immediately after receiving the power... They are sharing what they received. You know, you go out on a clear night, which I don't think Seattle has very many of them, but uh, if you go out on a clear night and you look into the heavens and you see that beautiful full moon, you know, you look at the moon, you say, oh, man, look at that romantic moon. It's so beautiful tonight. You know, that's, uh, you really should not say that about the moon because the moon has no light. What you should say is, Look at the sun. The sun is so beautiful tonight. Because the light of the moon is the light of the sun. The moon simply reflects the light of the sun. That's why Jesus said, I am the light of the world. But he said, you are the light of the world as well. Because he is the sun and we are to be moons. When we receive the light, we give the light. And Ellen White says, if we have no light to give, it's because we have no connection with the source of the light. The greatest evidence that we have the Holy Spirit is witnessing. If we don't feel a passion for souls, for reaching out to other people, for sharing what Jesus has done for us, we have not had that experience with Jesus. It's that simple. When we believe in Jesus and trust in Him and receive salvation and forgiveness of sins, then it will be a delight to go tell other people what Jesus has done for us. We drink from the fountain and then we become fountains. That's what Jesus is saying is going to occur on the day of Pentecost. He's saying, you shall receive power. See, we need to receive something first. You shall receive, you'll drink the water, you shall receive power. But then he says, you shall be witnesses to me. In other words, you will give what you received. Now, let's go and find out who was present there in the upper room when the power was poured out. Acts 1 verse 15 tells us that there were about 120 gathered in the upper room on the day of Pentecost. Now, what I want to do in the next couple of minutes is I would like to go through Peter's sermon, or the events, rather, of Acts chapter 2, the outline of the events in Acts chapter 2. We can't study the entire sermon. You know, it really merits sitting down and studying every phrase of Peter's sermon. It's powerful. What what he is presenting on the day of Pentecost, uh, after the Holy Spirit is poured out, is a powerful sermon. But let me just go through a summary of the sequence of events in Acts chapter 2. Now, in Acts 2, verses 1 to 4, and by the way, you'll have all of this if you give us your email address. You'll have all of this material that I'm presenting here. Uh, In Acts 2, verses 1 through 4, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is described. It says that a mighty rushing wind, there are tongues of fire, uh, the place shook, and uh, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke in tongues. That's what we find in Acts 2, 1 to 4. Now, Acts 2, 5 through 8, the following verses, we find that there were many nations present there, and and we're told that they were bewildered. In verses 5 through 8, they were bewildered, amazed, and confused because they heard these 120 that were gathered in the upper room speaking their languages. You see, they had come from all of the surrounding nations. They were all Jews, by the way. They were not Gentiles yet. They were all Jews. But the Jews had been dispersed. In a few moments, we're going to read some statements from Ellen White. The Jews had been out in what is called the diaspora, or the dispersion. And when they had gone out to these nations, the second and third generation Jews had forgotten their native tongue. And so they spoke the tongues of these nations. And so, uh, and so they're bewildered and confused how Peter and those who are gathered there are speaking in, the, in their languages. They're bewildered. And then in Acts 2, 9 through 11, the, the names of the nations are given. There are about 13 nations that are mentioned, present there on the day of Pentecost. And then in Acts 2, 12 and 13... Once again, we're told that they're bewildered. How is it that these, uh, that, that these men, Galileans, are speaking in the languages of the nations where we were born? It's, it's incredible. And so some that are present there say, Oh, they're just drunk. So Peter has to stand up. At this point, Peter stands up. Peter hasn't said anything yet. He stands up, and in verses 14 and 15... He says, folks, these men are not drunk because it is only the third hour of the day. In other words, it's 9 o'clock in the morning. They're getting over their, hang, they're, they're in their, their hangover stage. <laughs> they're not drinking at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, I realize that there are binge drinkers that do, but it's not normal. And so he's saying they're not drunk. And then Peter, in verse 16 through verse 22 quotes joel two twenty eight to thirty two to explain what is taking place. did Peter now understand bible prophecy? Oh yes, he did. He knew exactly where where to get the text to show what was happening on the day of Pentecost. Remember we talked yesterday about the fact that Jesus spent forty days speaking to his disciples about the things concerning the kingdom of God. He, Jesus had explained these prophecies to them, and now peter quotes uh, uh, joel two twenty eight to thirty two to explain what is happening on earth. First, he explains what's happening on earth by appealing to Joel 2, 28 to 32. But then Peter wants to focus on what's happening in heaven. See, if you read his sermon, you're going to find that the central focus and the climax of his sermon is not what is happening on earth. He first explains what's happening on earth by quoting Joel. He says, this is what was predicted by Joel the prophet. But then he says, let me tell you what this on earth really means. And so, summarizing, in verses 17 to 36, Peter, first of all, speaks about the life of service of Christ, his life. Then he describes how Jesus was killed. Then he describes that Jesus was buried. Then he says that Jesus resurrected from the dead, as was predicted in Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10. See, he's quoting scripture. And then he goes on to explain that after Jesus resurrected, he was exalted to the right hand of God. See, there. that's what we talked about yesterday. Remember what we talked about yesterday? His arrival in heaven and and how he was clothed as the high priest and how he was anointed with the Spirit. And then the droplets fell to where the disciples were gathered in the upper room. Now, Peter is explaining that. He says he was exalted to the right hand of God. And having received from the Father the promise of the Spirit, he poured out on you what you see and hear. Where was the important event? important event was in heaven. In other words, Peter is saying he was anointed. He uses the word Christos, which which is translated Messiah. In other words, he's become the anointed one because he's the high priest. He was anointed with the spirit, with oil. And the evidence that he is now the high priest, anointed for his office, is what you see happening here on earth. And then Peter quotes Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until your enemies are made your footstool. In other words, once again, he's quoting scripture to speak about Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father. Isn't it a, a magnificent sermon? Oh, it has structure, it's organized. He's not just talking a whole bunch of stuff. You know, he's, he, he clearly is thinking in an organized fashion about what he's presenting. And so when he finishes his sermon, apparently he forgot to make a call. Because the Bible tells us that the the men who were present there in verse 37, they rush up to where Peter is. And they say, Peter, in the light of what you've preached, what shall we do? What's the practical application of all of this? What, What do we need to do in the light of the fact that Jesus is at the right hand of God? He's been installed as the high priest. He's the anointed one over his people. What do we need to do in the light of that? And of course, Peter says, in verse 38, what? Yes. Repent. Had the disciples repented? In the upper room, the ten days before Pentecost, had they repented? Yes. Had they confessed their sins? Yes. Did they receive the Spirit in consequence? Yes, they did. So what is Peter saying? Peter is saying, now you folks need to go through the same experience we went through. Repent. But then he says something else. Repent and what? Repent and be baptized. And he says, each one of you. What Jesus did by his life and death is corporate. It is for everyone. But the application of what he did for everyone is individual. Are you following me? And in the Greek it says, each one of you repent and be baptized. In other words, what you need to do is to repent and trust in Jesus and be baptized, and then you will receive forgiveness of sins, such as we received. Now, baptism is much more important than what most people realize. Let me explain why baptism baptism is really the moment, folks, when we are incorporated into Christ. Now, you've all seen baptisms, biblical baptism. It has to be by immersion, by the way. It can't be by sprinkling. It doesn't fit. And I'm going to explain why. You've seen the pastor. He's in the, you know, he's in the baptistry. The candidate is in front of him. He says, I baptize you in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. What's the last thing that the person does before they're put under the water? They stop breathing. What are they doing while they're under the water? They better not breathe. They're not breathing. What's the first thing they do when they come out of the water? (sighs) They breathe again. Do you know what's happening at baptism? You are reenacting the experience of Christ. Because Christ on the cross stopped breathing. And while he was in the tomb, he did not breathe. And when he resurrected, he breathed again. What happens at baptism is that God reckons you in Him because you're going through the same experience that He went through. So when you are baptized, you are in Him. In the Beloved, accepted. God looks upon you as if you had never sinned because at that moment, your sins are forgiven. So they weren't forgiven at the cross. They're forgiven when you appropriate What Jesus did. You know, people ask me, they say, aren't you afraid of flying? I say, no, I'm not afraid. Why should I be afraid? Oh, aren't you afraid that the airplane's going to fall out of the sky and crash? I said, no, not really. No? No. Why not? Because I'm in Christ. See, I've trusted in Jesus. I was baptized. I'm in Him. Because I went through His experience. And the Apostle Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first. So if I'm in Christ, death means nothing. If God sees that my usefulness has come to an end, praise the Lord, but I'm in Him. So at baptism, you become in Him, and He stands in your place. His life is in place of your life, and His death is in place of your death. You are accepted in the Beloved. That's what Peter is saying. And that's what the disciples were supposed to preach. That was present truth in their days. So far, so good? How many baptisms that day? 3,000. I would say that was a successful evangelistic sermon. (laughs) He would be retained as a pastor very quickly. In any conference. Now... Let's talk a little bit about the purpose of the gift of tongues. Now we we have the background to talk about the purpose of the gift of tongues. I want to read from Acts of the Apostles, page 39. This is Ellen White's book, Acts of the Apostles, page 39. She speaks about the purpose of the gift of tongues. The purpose of giving the Spirit is so that they can proclaim the gospel, right? Now notice what she says. The Holy Spirit, assuming the form of tongues of fire rested upon those assembled. This was an emblem of the gift then bestowed on the disciples, which enabled them to speak with fluency languages with which they had heretofore been unacquainted. The appearance of fire signified the fervent zeal with which the apostles would labor and the power that would attend their work. So they were given the ability to speak with fluency languages that they had never studied. You know, I speak Spanish fluently. I speak better Spanish than English. But I don't have the gift of tongues. Because I learned Spanish. This was not a learned phenomenon. This was a miraculous act of programming the brain of the disciples with... with, uh, A Rosetta Stone type course where they not only spoke accurately the languages but they knew all of the idioms and they knew all of the cultural nuances of the words. Amazing. But what was the purpose? Self-edification? A shot of adrenaline for a high spiritual experience? Speaking gibberish which God can't even understand? No, of course not. The purpose was evangelistic. Now, why was the gift of tongues the only gift that was imparted on the day of Pentecost? You don't find any other, any other gift mentioned in Acts chapter 2. It's only the gift of tongues. The reason, folks, is because it was the gift that was needed urgently at that specific moment. It's not because it's the most important gift. It's not because everyone must have this gift. It's not because you have to have this gift in order to be saved. No, it's because at that moment, the gift was needed to share the message about Jesus Christ in the languages that people could understand. You see, God, God wisely chose the right time for Pentecost to take place. There were three Hebrew feasts where all the Jews, all Jewish men, 12 and older, were required to go to Jerusalem and be in attendance, no matter where they lived. The first was Passover, the second was Pentecost, and the third was the Feast of Tabernacles. So Jerusalem was bursting at the seams with people from every nation under heaven. But the problem is, those individuals that came from all of the nations could not speak the languages, the the disciples could not speak the languages of the people that came from those nations. And so God said, I have to perform a miracle. I have to give my servants the ability to speak those languages so that then the people can hear the message and they can go back to their native uh, they can go back to their nations and they can speak what they heard in their native languages to their people Amen. spread the word in a language that that they do by the way do you know that nowhere in acts chapter 2 does it say that these individuals who repented and were baptized received the gift of tongues None of them received the gift of tongues. Why not? Because they were going to go to their, their, to their nation. And they didn't need to speak the languages of other nations. All they needed to do was to hear the message in their language and then go to their nation and preach that message in the language in which they were born. So there's no reference to them receiving the gift of tongues. Now let me read you from Ellen White, Acts of the Apostles 39 and 40, where Ellen White describes... Um, this idea of the dispersion where the Jews went to all of the nations and lost their knowledge of their mother tongue. She says in page 39 and 40, During the dispersion, the Jews had been scattered to almost every part of the inhabited world. And in their exile, they had learned to speak various languages. Many of these Jews were on this occasion in Jerusalem attending the religious festivals then in progress. Every known tongue was represented by those assembled. The diversity of languages would have been a great hindrance to the proclamation of the gospel. God, therefore, in a miraculous manner, supplied the deficiency of the apostles. The Holy Spirit did for them that which they could not have accomplished for themselves in a lifetime. They could now proclaim the truths, listen carefully, they could now proclaim the truths of the gospel abroad, speaking with accuracy the languages of those for whom they were laboring. This miraculous gift was a strong evidence to the world that their commission bore the signet of heaven. From this time, and by the way, the gift of tongues was permanent, It wasn't given, and then, you know, after they used it, they didn't have it anymore. It was permanent. Incidentally, do you know who spoke more tongues than anyone else? The Apostle Paul. Why would God give Paul the gift of speaking in many tongues? Because Paul went on many missionary journeys to many nations. Not because, but because God wanted Paul to have a greater spiritual uh, injection of adrenaline and, and for self-edification. No, it was because Paul was a missionary to the nations. So God had to give Paul the ability to speak the languages of the nations. She continues saying, From this time forth, the language of the disciples was pure, simple, and accurate, whether they spoke in their native tongue or in a foreign language. Wow. And you know, last year I spoke about how God imparted the gift of tongues. And I'll just throw this out. Uh, you know, uh, the first time in the Bible that you have the gift of tongues is um, at the Tower of Babel. Of course, granted that the purpose was different, because the purpose at Babel was to confuse and divide. The purpose, uh, at, at Pentecost was to unite and to communicate. So there it was to impede communication here it was to aid communication. But still God imparted the gift of tongues there and here. Do you know why White has a statement where she says uh, in um, Story of Redemption that God sent two angels that imparted the gift of tongues to the Babel builders. Genesis said the Lord God confused their languages and divided them on the earth. Ellen White said God sent two angels to confuse their languages and to, div- uh, to disperse them upon the earth. Uh, really, what took place at the day of Pentecost is that God unleashed all of the heavenly hosts to aid the disciples in the preaching of the gospel because they were prepared and ready to receive that aid. See, the angels are the ones that help us in the task of proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Now, let's go through the rest of the book of Acts and study the gift of tongues in the rest of the book of Acts. Go with me to Acts 4 and verse 31. So far, so good? Okay, Acts 4, verse 31. Notice, this is speaking about the gift that is given several days after Pentecost. And this is happening in Jerusalem. It says there in Acts 4, verse 31. And incidentally, before before we read this text, let me mention that the book of Acts actually gives us the whole... uh, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 gives us the structure of the whole book. Because it says Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. That's the way the book of Acts is organized. Because in Acts, listen carefully, Acts 1 through 7 the gospel is being proclaimed in Jerusalem. In Acts 8, 1 and 2, it's being proclaimed in Judea. But then God allows persecution to come. And then, in the rest of chapter 8, you have the gospel being proclaimed in Samaria. And then in Acts 9, you have the conversion of Saul. And the purpose is because now it's going to go to the ends of the earth. So he's converted in chapter 9, and then... Paul and Barnabas are ordained. And then beginning in chapter 10 of Acts, the gospel now goes to Caesarea and it goes to the uttermost ends of the earth in the rest of the book of Acts. And so the book of Acts is structured according to Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, the order in which the gospel was going to go out. So first of all, we look at Jerusalem. Acts 4 verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place... Where they were assembled together, Peter has just spoken, was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And they spoke the word of God with boldness. Any reference to the gift of tongues here? No reference to the gift of tongues. Why didn't they receive the gift of tongues? They were preaching in Jerusalem. Pentecost was over. Everybody had gone back to their nation. They needed to preach in the the language of the place where they lived. Now, let's go to the next reference. Acts 8, 14 through 17. Now the gospel goes to Samaria. Acts 8, verses 14 through 17. Uh, You know, the, the apostles preached the word to the Samaritans. And I want you to notice what happens. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who... When they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had not fallen upon, he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Any reference to receiving the gift of tongues with the Holy Spirit? No, why not. Did the Samaritans speak basically the same language as uh, the people who live in Jerusalem? Of course. Didn't Jesus have a conversation with a Samaritan woman? Didn't she understand what Jesus was saying? Of course she did. So why was not the gift of tongues imparted to those who lived in Samaria? It wasn't needed. Because they spoke the language and they lived there. Are you following me? But now when we get to Acts chapter 10, the gospel has gone to Caesarea outside the borders. And so notice Acts chapter 10 and verses 44 To forty seven. Acts ten, forty four through forty seven. This is the experience of Cornelius. Remember the Cornelius came with two other men uh, to the home of Peter? And of course God had had told Peter, You know, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean? And he was referring to the Gentiles. It says, While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all, all those who heard the word. And those of the circumcision who believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Was this the same gift as the book of Acts? Is this the same gift that Jesus spoke of before His ascension? Is this the same gift that He spoke of in the upper room? Is this the same gift that John the Baptist spoke of? Or is this some other kind of gift of tongues, where, uh, you know, gift of the Holy Spirit, where it gives you the ability to speak languages that nobody, not even God, understands? Let's continue reading. It says the word also is important, right? Because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. Verse 46. For they heard them speak with tongues. Also in Caesarea, tongues was given. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Is it the same gift? Yes. It is absolutely the same gift. And Now you say, but why was the gift of tongues imparted at Caesarea? The reason is very simple. You see, Caesarea was the most important seaport between Egypt and Tyre Egypt in the south and Tyre in the north people from all nations came to that port and God saw that it was necessary to give the gift of tongues to Cornelius and to his family so that they could reach the many people who came from other nations to that seaport that specific seaport so that they could proclaim the gospel in the languages of those people and then those people Would go back to their nations because they were merchants. You know, Tyre was a merchant city. Ships came there. They would go back to their nations and share the gospel in their native tongues. Notice Acts chapter 11 and verses 15 and 16. Acts chapter 11 verses 15 and 16. It's the same gift. And it has an evangelistic purpose. It says, and as I began to speak, here Peter is rendering his report to the brethren in Jerusalem who are disturbed about what has just happened with the Gentiles. It says, and as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remember, that, is this the same gift that John the Baptist spoke about? Listen carefully. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Same gift? Yes, sir. Same gift. The gift of tongues is the same all throughout the New Testament. There is no gift of tongues which is gibberish. The purpose is to be able to speak the languages of the nations so that you can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me read you a statement from Ellen White, Acts of the Apostles 139, on why the Holy Spirit and the gift of tongues was given there in Caesarea. She says, Thus was the gospel brought to those who had been strangers and foreigners, making them fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. The conversion of Cornelius and his household was but the first fruits of a harvest to be gathered in. From this household, listen carefully, from this household... A widespread work of grace was carried on in that heathen city. Purpose was to reach the heathen who had come from all nations, who came to do business in all of those nations. Now, let's go to the next example, Ephesus. Is that way beyond the borders of Israel? Oh, yes. This is in Asia Minor. Acts 19, verses 1 through 6. Acts 19 and verses 1 through 6. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on Him who would come after Him, that is, on Jesus Christ. Is he referring to John the Baptist? Same gift all over again. It always harks back to John the Baptist. Verse 5. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they what? And they spoke With tongues and prophesied. Now the question is, why did they speak in tongues there at the city of Ephesus? Simply because Ephesus was one of the most important trade centers in all of Asia. People from every nation under heaven came through Ephesus because it was a large commercial center. And so God knew that it was necessary for the church members to share the gospel with people from all nations that came through that metropolitan and cosmopolitan city. And so God said, I must give them the gift of tongues so that they can share the gospel with all of the language groups that come through the city. Acts of the Apostles 283, once again Ellen White saw this very clearly. She says, with deep interest and grateful, wondering joy... The brethren listened to Paul's words. These are those that uh, we just read about. By faith they grasped the wonderful truth of Christ's atoning sacrifice and received Him as their Redeemer. They were then baptized in the name of Jesus. And as Paul laid his hands upon them, they received also the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now listen carefully. By which they were enabled to speak the languages of other nations And to prophesy. Thus, they were qualified to labor as missionaries in Ephesus and its vicinity. And also to go forth to proclaim the gospel in Asia Minor. Is that clear? So this whole thing about tongues being gibberish. And just for a spiritual high, a shot of adrenaline. It has no basis or foundation in scripture. Now, let's go to our last example. And this is not, this is, uh, Corinth is mentioned in the book of Acts, but the gift of tongues itself is mentioned in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Incidentally, I'm not going to be able to talk about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 because uh, it, it takes a long time to cover all that material, but I'm adding that to your notes. So if you give me your email address, you'll be able to read everything I have to say about the gift of tongues in 1 Corinthians 12-14. through But I want to say a few things about Corinth. Corinth was one of the busiest seaports in the continent of Europe. People from all language groups came through Corinth. So would you expect God to impart the gift of tongues in Corinth? Of course you would. It was a great metropolitan center and it was a great cosmopolitan center. And so God... Imparted the gift of tongues in Corinth Incidentally the gift in Corinth Was not different than the gift of tongues In the book of Acts It's simply that the people in Corinth Were misusing the gift The the genuine gift of tongues that God had given You know it's kind of like If here we had people who speak 15 different languages of the earth And everybody started talking in those languages all at once Would that be confusion? That would be mass confusion. You know what they were doing at Corinth? They were showing off. In other words, each one of them was trying to excel the other one by by showing how he could speak this language that he'd never studied. And everybody was talking languages simultaneously at once. So the Apostle Paul says, no, 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 no. He says, if you're going to speak in tongues, it's going to be only up to three of you And each in his order. Not everybody at once. And he says, and if somebody speaks in a tongue, and the people that are present don't speak that tongue, there has to be an interpreter. Are you with me? So they were misusing the gift of tongues. It was the genuine gift of tongues, but they were misusing it. It would be like if I started speaking Spanish here. Well, a few of you would understand Spanish. The language of heaven. (laughs) No, no, actually, the language of heaven is going to be English. Because Americans can't learn any other language. (laughs) I'm just kidding, folks. Don't get offended. I'm American too. (laughs) Are you understanding what we're studying? Now, let me close... Time is almost up. Let me close by reading a a remarkable statement from Ellen White. It's found in Review and Herald, July 20, 1886. Review and Herald, July 20, 1886. This is a powerful statement. Incidentally, why why don't we see the gift of tongues more today? Do Americans need to go down to uh, Latin America and speak... Uh, have the gift of tongues given to them to preach in Guatemala? Why not? Because, because there's bunches of people down there that speak in Spanish. Now, what, under what circumstances would God impart the gift of tongues today? If we went to some nation where there's nobody to witness then God would say, I'm going to give the gift of tongues so that you can share the message with these people in their language and then they can share it with others in their own language. But today, it's virtually unnecessary because the Adventist church is working practically in every nation on earth. And there are local people who speak the language. See, in Acts, it, it was just starting. And so it was ultimately necessary because it was just starting. But once the gospel proliferated, the gift of tongues does not become as urgent and as necessary, except in special circumstances. Now, let me read you this statement. It is with an earnest longing that I look forward to the time when the events of the the day of Pentecost shall be repeated with even greater power than on that occasion. Wow! Called the latter rain. By the way, some people, uh, someone was asking me yesterday, is there any relationship between the latter rain and the loud cry? Yes. The latter rain is the power and the loud cry is the message. And why aren't we giving the loud cry? Because we don't have the power. And why don't we have the power? Because we haven't gone through the upper room experience. Of praying like never before. And studying prophecy like never before. Because that's what the apostles studied, was prophecy. Because we haven't, because we haven't uh, uh, made up with those that we have disagreements with. And because we have our own agendas. We're more concerned about our homes and our IRAs. And our savings accounts. And, and investing for the future. Rather than investing in the cost. One of the characteristics of of the early disciples was. They didn't consider anything that they had their own. They put it all on the altar of sacrifice. And they did not go hungry. So he continues saying. John says. I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power. And the earth was lightened with his glory. She says, then as at the Pentecostal season, the people will hear the truth spoken to them, every man in his own tongue. Thousands of voices will be imbued with power to speak forth the wonderful truths of God's word. The stammering tongue will be unloosed and the timid will be made strong to bear courageous testimony to the truth. Wow! Now what's the condition? Let me finish the statement. She says, May the Lord help his people to cleanse the soul temple from every defilement and to maintain such a close connection with him that they may be partakers of the latter rain when it shall be poured out. Do you see the relationship there there between the power and the message? What needs to happen in order to have the power to proclaim the message? She says, May the Lord help his people to cleanse the soul temple from every defilement and to maintain such a close connection with him that they may be partakers of the latter rain when it shall be poured out. What a magnificent promise God has made. And Ellen White says that, that the prophecies that were fulfilled in connection with the day of Pentecost will be repeated on a grander scale, and with greater power. Do you want to be part of that? Yeah. Oh man, I, I, you, can't, you can't even imagine how much I pray to the Lord that the Lord will, will give me a life long enough so that I can participate in that. <laughs> it is going to be spectacular. Phenomenal. And God is waiting for that to happen to His church. But right now the church is divided on all a series of issues. Now, don't get me wrong. They're important issues. They have to do with whether we accept the authority of God's word or not. We can only be united upon the authority of God's word. We cannot just say it doesn't make any difference if you you ordain women or if you don't ordain women. Let's just all get along. It doesn't make any difference. It makes a difference. Because we must be built upon the word of God. That's the only true unity. There's only one thing worse than division. And that is unity upon wrong principles. You know, the Christian world's all going to come together in unity. Yes. But it's not unity based on God's Word. And therefore, at the end, they will all be fighting against each other. There will be a big division. Because any unity that is not unity but upon God's Word is going to fall apart. Well, folks, uh, let's take a break. Five literal minutes. And uh, we will begin uh, ten minutes to eleven, Lord willing. This message was recorded by Fountain View Productions for GYC. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire and equip young people to be vibrant, Bible-based, and Christ-centered Christians. To download or purchase other resources, visit us online at gycweb.org.